And well, here is this quiet conversation, and I just want to step right back into our text and start us seeing what we're talking about. And so read with me this passage that we read, and we'll, we will build on it as we go. But read with me in verse 30. They went on from there. Remember, if you were with us before, if you haven't been with us, you can go back and listen to all these texts. But they're on this journey. They, they went on from there and passed through Galilee, way to the north in Israel. And he did not want anyone to know. And the question comes up of like, well, why? Isn't he trying to draw a crowd? Isn't he trying to get people with him? He didn't want anyone to know. Verse 31, for, this is why he was teaching his disciples. This is specifically to these followers of Jesus, the disciples. He was teaching his disciples. This is part of the quiet conversation. This isn't the big thousands of people gathered. This is him talking to this small group of people that he's pouring into. He's teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. And they will kill him. And when he's killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand they didn't understand the saying. So pause right here. Like Jesus is telling them what is about to happen. They are still thinking that they're going to Jerusalem at some point, and, and they are going to take over, kick out Rome, and now Jesus is king right here in it. And so Jesus is talking about going and dying and then rising again, and they're like, wait, what? And, and let's be honest, I think we would have similar reactions, but let's not follow on their exact their actions they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him and they came to Capernaum and when the when he was in the house he asked them what were you discussing on the way Again, just pause for context, a little bit of clarity. This isn't like Jesus doesn't know. Jesus has all knowledge right here. He, he's actually forming them into something. What were you discussing on the way? Catch this. But they kept silent. For on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. I just want to give a bit of backstory. I've told you a little bit about my testimony that I, I didn't grow up in church. I was not a Christian. Uh, we went like three times in my childhood. Uh, I started going a little bit in middle school only because there were pretty girls there. It was easy to be popular. It was like, this is a, a good plan. That was what got me into church. It is not one I would advocate for anyone, but God used that. If anything, I was a follower. I was a disciple of someone entirely different. I was a disciple. I'm a person of a certain age, and I was a full-on, fully devoted follower of Michael Jordan growing up. That was it. I, I was it. And not this weak sauce Washington stuff. I see you back there. Not that. The, the, the Michael Jordan who wore the red and the black. That's the one I knew. And, and I was of this age and time in which I had this poster on my wall. And listen, if I was bowing down to something, it was that. The greatest of all time, people. 
They had this advertisement that went along with that that was like, it's got to be the shoes, Mike. It's got to be the shoes. It has to be the shoes. And listen, I tried. I was like, I'm going to be this guy. I'm going to do this. I had a, a condition that I didn't know about. It's called Lot's disease, which is lack of talent. I had a lack of talent. I was not going to be the greatest of all time regardless of what shoes I was wearing. It did not matter. And I tried and tried and tried. It had to be the shoes, right? And over time, you start to realize that when uh, different things kind of fall short. You start to realize some of those things. But the, desi- the desire for greatness is, is always there. And we don't, rarely do we use the term. We don't, uh, we, we don't often say this. But, but we... We kind of walk in this. We think that we, we think we're it. Maybe you've got the mug that says greatest dad ever, or you're like Michael Scott, and you've got greatest boss ever, and you've got all these things. Like we have these desires baked into us. And I just want you to know, like at times, I have tasted greatness in the realm of being a father. And here's how that, here's how that works. It isn't all the time, but I've gotten there where you can kind of see it. My youngest, I, I was keeping my youngest for uh, while the older ones were away and Cindy was with them. And I had this moment, this epiphany, this mountaintop experience where I was like, I'm going to change her world and be the greatest dad ever in this moment. And so I got her up early. It's spring break. I got her up. We got dressed. We went out and we, we showed up at Brahms and we, we walked in boldly into Brahms and we ordered breakfast banana split. And I changed her life that day. <laughs> and the people were like, what are you ordering this at 7 a.m. for? And I was like, wait, 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 you're, you're about to see greatness as I sit down across from my girl. We have this, right? We have this. We, we, we have these moments where we think, like, I'm chasing after this. It's, we, we might not even think about it like that, but, like, we can watch the Olympics with a bag of chips and still think, like, I can do that. I can do that. We can go after these things all the time. You do not have to go far. Go to any, uh, any post, on, uh, any comment thread on any post, on any page of the internet, and you will see people who think they are the smartest, the best, and the greatest telling you how to live life. We have this in us. All of us, in some measure, think that we are great. We're trying to. And we're, we're chasing after something that we, we think we can achieve. We seem to have this need in ourselves to let everyone know about this. And right here in this passage, like twice Mark gives this indication that they're on the way somewhere. They're on the way. They're on the, this way someplace. And it's more than just on the way to Capernaum. It's on the way to Jerusalem, which is, is code for on the way to the cross, which he's talking about. Because in just a few weeks, Jesus will be on that cross. He will be right there. And everything from this moment forward is really pushing towards it. All the conversations, all these quiet moments, Jesus is leading them to something that is really different while they're still thinking about who is the greatest. Jesus is asking him right here in this text, what were you guys talking about? But not because of a lack in his part. He's, he is lovingly exposing something to them. He is, he is teaching them something about discipleship that they need to grasp. And we need this same lesson. 
We need this exact same lesson. Listen to what one author says. He says, Jesus speaks, Jesus speaks of the necessity of his rejection, suffering, and death. The disciples voice their ambitions for status and prestige. Jesus speaks of surrendering his life. The disciples speak of fulfilling theirs. He counts the cost of discipleship. They count its assets. The disciples have yet to learn that the rewards of discipleship come only as a consequence of following Christ on the costly way to Jerusalem. You see... There are only two ways of walking in this world. There are only two ways. You can dress it up in a million different uh, descriptors. You can call it religion. You can call it atheism. You can call it uh, whatever you want to. Uh, But there are only two paths. There there are always and only two paths. There's the paths of of work, our own way, so to speak. The, The way of earning. The way of trying to show ourselves to be something. The way of going after our own understanding. There, you could call it a million different things. But there is our own way, and then there's God's way. God's way of, uh, of recognizing that it's through death that we find life. That it's through humbling that we find acclaim. It's through, it's through sacrifice in which we, we find ourselves really living. There's only two ways, and that's where we're going to spend the rest of our time as we walk through this passage, that there are always and only two ways. Notice what verse 35 says. And he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be the last of all and and servant of all. You see here in this quiet conversation where Jesus is literally right before them, coming knee to knee with 12 people. He's like, it's not your way, it's this way. It's not arguing about who's greatest or who's any of these things. It's God's way. And so let's see that. Let's see that as we walk through these, these kind of three turns that we see in the text. The first is that uh, Jesus' way, God's way, is moving us from selfishness and thinking of our own selves to being servants. And, and you see that right here. Jesus doesn't actually get angry with them. Oftentimes he does get angry with the disciples. He, 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 he shows out on the disciples where he has far more patience on these, these people who just don't know better, but the disciples do. He doesn't get angry here. Instead, he affirms this in them. It's to understand, he affirms this, but he redefines what it actually means. He redefines what it means to be great and what it looks like to be great. You see, it's baked into all of us, whether you thought it was the shoes or you thought it was something else, or you would never use the term great, but you think uh, your opinion needs to hurt, be heard. And if they, just, if they would just listen to me, you're, experienced the same, you're experiencing that same feeling inside yourself. Jesus doesn't get angry. He actually redefines what they think is greatness. And Here's where it kind of crawls up in our business is because most of us assume that we're already doing this. If you come to church, you're, you're probably thinking like, I, I, I can do that. I can humble myself. I serve. 
Most of us think that we're doing it, but, but the problem is we serve those that we really like when it's really convenient for us and in the, the places where it's like, everybody's really great to me on this and we can serve right there. But that is not what Jesus is leading us to. And I want you to see, the, I want you to see how I get there. Pick it up in verse 36. Because right as Jesus is telling them what greatness looks like, he, he puts it in context for them. In verse 36, he says, And he took a child and put him in the midst of them. Right in the middle of these guys, he grabs a child and puts him in the midst of them. And, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And who re whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. You see, this is, this is staggering, and these guys would have been sitting there, and if they weren't understanding before, they're definitely still sitting on their hands saying, I'm not quite getting what's going on, because they weren't seeing kids in the same way that we see kids. Not that they devalued them, but in, in first century, in the first century, kids were not these cute things to post on your, you know, on your Instagram or on your stream. Kids were something of like a commodity in this in which you needed these kids and these kids would produce. And, and these kids, if they weren't producing as they grew up, they, they were actually trouble in this. And so you see these spots where the disciples are actually shooing kids away and they're not helpful in this. And Jesus actually, in this conversation about who's the greatest draws the least of these in brings them close and says in effect whoever whoever receives these these that have nothing to offer you back in return. These who are, are probably not going to even thank you in it. These who are, are for years maybe just going to take and take and take. Whoever receives these, is, they're actually the ones that's receiving me. And he just redefines it. He turns it all on its head right here before them. And the point is this, Jesus is calling us, he's calling those who would call themselves disciples, followers of Jesus. He's calling us out of a heart posture focused on ourselves. He's calling us away from our own way. And he's calling us into a heart posture of, of living as the servants of others, especially the least of these. You see, this is this is servanthood as the mark of true discipleship. This is servanthood showing itself in the life of a follower of Jesus. And friends, I just need to say this, because too often we just kind of run right past this. This isn't an optional teaching from Jesus. This isn't just like, okay, I'll try to work that in. I'll, I'll try to upgrade at some point or get some bonus points by doing something. This is not an optional thing from Jesus. It's for those, it, it, it is the standard that he puts out. And so what would it look like if you and I rejected the, the world's notion on, on being the greatest or what it even looks like to be the greatest and said, you know what, 
I'm going to serve those around me. I'm going to serve. Where there's opportunities for me to step back and magnify others, that's what I'm going to work to do. What does this look like with your time? With how you spend your time? What does it look like with who you're going to? The, the, the people that you're, you're, you're going and reaching out to. What does it look like with your budget, your career? What does it look like with how you use your home? Your vision of the good life. What, is it, what does that do to these things? Because again, these are non-negotiable pieces. Jesus isn't saying like, at some point and sometime, if you get to this mystery level of following after me, these things will be present. No, he's saying anyone who is operating in this way is actually the one who's receiving me. The one who is coming after me. And so this first thing that we see right here is God redefining and reorientating what greatness looks like. It, it moves away from a selfishness. It moves away from putting the spotlight on ourselves to being a servant, and, and the spotlight goes on others. It leads us to this second turn. Pick it up with me in verse 38. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. And we tried to stop him. Now, pause right here, just for just a second. We're having this conversation about greatness. We're having all of this, and they're too afraid to say anything. They're, they don't understand, and they're not, they're not asking questions about, wait, what is this going to the cross stuff? What is, what is all this? They're not asking questions. The first person who opens his mouth, surprise, not Peter, but is John. And then he says something profoundly stupid in this moment. He's like, hey, we saw someone doing something in your name. Jesus, we stopped him. We stopped him. You'll be glad to know, Jesus, we stopped him. Again, think about this. We, we just read last week, we were talking about they were trying to cast out demons, and they couldn't do it, and they're coming to Jesus and like, why couldn't we do this? Why was this not working? And here, the very next thing, sandwiched in between, like they're talking about who's the greatest after this monumental failure. We come right here, and someone's actually doing it, and the disciples are like, hey, we took care of that. We stopped him. We stopped him. Because he would, like, teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. I was in a, I was in a drama class years ago and they have a, a term, pause for dramatic effect. You're like, he was... He was not following us. But Jesus said, do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. What they should have said was, we didn't think he was following you, Jesus. But they missed it, right? They, they, they missed it. They were like, he wasn't following us. He wasn't following us. And the second thing that we see right here in the text is like, it, it, 
it changes things. Jesus is redefining greatness, and he's, he's moving it from this prideful distance that we keep from others, prideful distance, to this gospel nearness. Like, it draws people in. It's drawing people closer. The disciples here are pushing this guy away, and Jesus is thinking, like, what are you doing? This guy, draw him near. Draw him near. We tried to stop him because he was not following us. But that is the problem. He actually was. He was doing this in Jesus' name. He was doing these very things in the name of Jesus. He just wasn't following John. He wasn't doing things John's way. And hear this. When life becomes about you and your success and people following after your ways, and your ambition, then people get reduced to being tools we use to compare and compete. Like this guy, he's either going to make me look bad or I can look good by shutting him down. And this person is either going to help me or hurt me, but they're, they're actually no longer a person, they're just a commodity that we're using. And Jesus redefines greatness in this. He's taken us from being selfish to being servants, and he's taken us from creating distance with people to actually saying, like, why, why are you not drawing this person in? Our pride pushes people away from us, which uh, ironically makes it difficult, if not impossible, to actually serve them, which we're supposed to do. Our pride actually creates this distance. When we, when we stop and we yield to the Lord, it it draws us near to one another. God's way through Jesus leads to nearness. A nearness where we don't have to act or perform. We actually can receive people. We can walk in. We, we, can, we can acknowledge our, our brokenness. That we can acknowledge all the areas in which we've fallen short. It's part of the reason why we, we do confession leading to assurance each and every week. It's the gospel being formed in our lives which draws us nearer to him and nearer to others. But hear this, there are no qualifiers here. There's no qualifiers. Like this guy, this guy, what was he saying? What was his theological perspective right now? Did he have his act together? Was he wearing a mask or not wearing a mask? Was he saying it the right way or not saying it the right way? Did he have presence or not presence? There's none of those qualifiers that's right here. Jesus asks no questions. We're not given anything on it. Is he doing it in my name? Jesus is calling his followers to draw near to others. Even, and maybe especially if they differ from you. To draw near. And what we see through the Gospels is that Jesus welcomed all types of people who had different opinions. He, he has a tax collector, a zealot, stubborn Jewish men. He has Gentiles and women and children even right here in this passage. He brings all sorts of people that are going to look side-eyes at one another. And yet by bringing them in, by yielding and coming through the Gospel, they're actually knit together in really beautiful ways. Jesus welcomes 
all sorts of people, and he, he draws them near through the gospel work that he is. And notice what it says, where he's going in this. In verse 41, we keep seeing him build on this. In verse 41, it says, For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Jesus goes to the, uh, he takes it from, uh, this guy was casting out demons. Okay, we can, we can see that that guy's doing some big stuff. And he puts it in the most simple, mundane, run-of-the-mill, no news story needed. If someone gives you a cup of water, the small, the smallest, just no glamour act of kindness that is possible, Jesus throws out. And says, this is it. And so let's look at this third way as we close all this up. This third way that Jesus wants to meet us and turn us from our own way to God's way. That There are clues here in this text that I want you to see. But as we walk through this, we've seen that he's moving us from selfishness to servant. To being servants. He's moved us from uh, creating distance and uh, pridefully pushing people away to drawing near to one another through the gospel, through his body broken, his blood shed. He's drawing us near to one another. And, this, and, and there, here is this third way, which I want you to see before we get into this text. It starts with saying, whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me. And it ends with, be at peace with one another. It starts with this, like, anyone dealing with these little ones, and then it, it, it ends with, be at peace, and let's pay attention to what happens in between. So we've got a few verses to go through, but here's where we're at in verse 42. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin. Remember, that, this little one that's now sitting right in the midst of them who's representative of this other guy who's out casting out demons and who's representative of the least of these. Whoever causes one of them to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands and go to hell. To the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. You see, this third way that Jesus is calling us to is to move from a callousness and move from just a callous heart towards other people, not caring about the kid, not caring about this person, not caring about the least of these, moving from a callousness to a heart that is caring for other people. Jesus is warning his disciples, he's warning these followers to take greater responsibility and care for their own behavior and actions because of the direct effect 
that it can have, that it does have on those around them. This is a call to walking in community, to walking and caring for other people around you. A call to think past yourself for the good of those around you, for the good of others. And he's using some some strong pictures here. Jesus uses several strong pictures. When we talk about mixing metaphors, that's what's happening right here. Jesus is going after the metaphor train, and he's found all of them, and he's linking them up. He starts with the millstone, which is with this grinding machine, this, this real heavy millstone that comes out to grind out all sorts of things, to, to get the oils or, or, or to refine something really hard. And, and these things are huge. They're, they're, they're simply enormous heavy apparatuses. And Jesus is talking about if you're causing one of the least of these to go astray, it would be better for you to have that tied around your neck and to be tossed into the sea. You need to be caring for those around you. See, the sea is also a metaphor too, right? It isn't just the sea. We get like, man, the, you've got this uh, concrete necktie that you're going to throw around me and throw me into the sea. I get that. It makes me sink. Yeah. But there's more to it because the sea to these Jewish people represented chaos and madness and, and, and this dark place. It represented all these scary things. It would be better for you to be tossed into chaos and darkness. He talks about hell repeatedly. And that word gets translated. It's actually translated from something specifically. And, and we need to kind of catch this. It, it's the word Gehenna, which is this ravine that runs uh, outside of Jerusalem, which they would throw the trash and they would throw everything out there. And, and just like trash in any city, it starts to pile up. And what do they do? They were like, oh, we got to get rid of this somehow. Uh, and so we'll burn it. And they ultimately started taking the prisoners out to Gehenna. And, and when they'd execute them, they'd just throw the bodies out there and it ended up being this endless fire that it, it didn't take the brightest person in the room to recognize, I don't want any part of that. And by Jesus' day, it represented separation from God, this, this separation from who he is. And then this, this final metaphor that he gives is actually salt and fire. And he, it's about purification and walking into it. And so Jesus is saying something incredibly counterculture for us. He's saying you are responsible for more than just you. Your behavior, your actions, your posts, your, the things that you say, the, the things that, that you're doing with your life, your behavior is actually affecting other people. And you need to pay close attention to it. You need to care for these people. Because like Jesus' disciples, it's far too easy to be selfish and to create distance and to be just callous coming in contact with other people and just callous towards them. And yet Jesus is calling us to a different way right here. He's calling us to be servants. He's saying greatness is found through serving those around you. Greatness is found through drawing others near through the gospel. Through the gospel. And real greatness is found 
to caring for others through your behavior and how you're living. It's not through whatever sneaker you can find and buy. It's not the shoes. It's not you puffing yourself up in all sorts of ways. It's through acts as simple as a glass of water in which we see ourselves being formed into the image of Christ.